welcome back to the Legal Matters Podcast, brought to you by the California Association of Realtors. I'm Jana Gardner, here as always with my colleague Dana Spears. Hi, everyone. This month, we are going to be covering the hottest topics that have been keeping us busy on the legal hotline this spring and now into the summer. We sure are. But first, let's check in on some breaking news. All right, so we're going to start off today with actually some breaking news before we get into the uh, long list of items that we want to talk about. Mm. As we record this, it was just announced that Governor Newsom and the state legislature have apparently worked out an agreement to extend the state eviction moratorium rules another three months. So now, instead of expiring at the end of June, the protections are now largely set to expire at the end of September. And that's statewide. Some counties have already done that. Exactly. Some other places have already done their own extensions and protections. Mm. And if they've already done that, then the local, the most, the most restrictive or protective rules, which might be the local ones, are (laughs) what property owners and landlords need to follow. Um, But for everybody statewide, you know, as, as we pretty much suspected, Things are not going to just flip a switch and go back to normal on July 1st. Um, We'll have a lot more details for everyone next month. Keep an eye, or next month, July. Keep an eye out for a webinar that I'm sure will be coming. And of course, all of our materials, our Q&As, and just want to highlight this breaking news that the COVID-19 Tenant Relief Act is not going to expire on June 30th and with some modifications has largely been extended now until September 30th instead. Make sure everyone's aware of that and stay tuned for some more details. That out of the way, we can go ahead and jump into our main focus of the episode today, which is talking about hotline hot topics. What's been keeping us so busy on the hotline through the spring and into the early summer months of 2021 here. So the first thing, speaking of COVID-related laws uh, that we wanted to talk about is the updated showing guidance. So everyone's been following these very restrictive stay-at-home orders and real estate industry showing guidelines. I know everyone was sick of dealing with the PED forms and the posted rules of entry and all of that, right? We got so many calls about that on the hotline for sure. So now the the good news is that as of the sort of reopening of the state of California on June 15th, it largely is back to, in many ways, business as usual, or sort of the 2020, 2019 version of showing properties. So no more peed forms. Hooray. Everyone's excited about that. Um, <laughs> it means open houses are back. So you can have a traditional open house again. You don't have to have by appointment only or by scheduled or, you know, cleaning between every showings. Um, yeah, I will say. Yeah, I know. I am still getting some questions about uh, whether agents should be cleaning their properties. And, you know, I, I would say, sure, um, in, in the way that you always would have. It's just now not mandated by um, CDC guidelines or anything like that. That's right. It's, but it's still a good business practice. Yeah, it's still a good business practice <laughs> to make sure that your the property that you are showing for your clients is being kept clean. Um, that's just a good idea in general. But now, it's essentially business as normal. The the only thing that is still in place, of course, are the now modified mask rules, which say that people who are vaccinated are no longer required to wear masks. Um, 
I mean, there, there still are in certain circumstances that don't apply to real estate. If you go to a hospital or a school, mm-hmm. or if you ride a train or something like that. But for our purposes, vaccinated people are no longer required to wear masks indoors or outdoors. Um, unvaccinated people still are. But this, of course, raises the question of how do you make this determination? How do you enforce this rule? Right. So there's a couple of different approaches. Um, the sort of utmost conservative approach would be you can still require masks. That way you don't even have to have the conversation. You don't have to ask anybody if they're vaccinated. You don't have to, you know, potentially provoke somebody into a potentially uncomfortable conversation. You can just say, you know what, if you're going to come inside the property, let's all just wear masks. And this is a conversation to have with your seller about what, what does the seller want to do for the, for showings? Um, Because alternatively, you can obviously ask people whether they're vaccinated or not. Um, or the sort of most aggressive stance, and I'm sure everyone has seen that many businesses are doing this already, which is having a sign or a posting out front that says something like masks required for mm-hmm. unvaccinated individuals. And if you don't wear a mask, you're attesting that you're vaccinated. Um, so I've, I've definitely been to some retail type establishments that have that sort of setup. But again, it's really gonna be you know, between the listing agent and the seller, just important to have a conversation about what guidelines you want to set and if they just want to have a blanket mask rule for now. Um, but like I said, at the very least, unvaccinated individuals still need to wear masks indoors. Vaccinated folks can go without. Exactly. So, and that's that's pretty much it. As long as you're on top of the mask guidelines, everything else, more or less back to business as usual. Yeah, so that's pretty so simple. That's, yeah, it is. It's, it's some good news finally um, yeah. on, on that front for sure. Exactly. Well, another hot topic right now, something we're getting a lot of questions on is sellers looking for replacement property. For sure. Sellers seem to be creeping back into the market, but inventory has not reached the ample levels we were used to in the past. What this means is that it can be difficult for sellers to find replacement property. So sellers that need replacement property generally want a contingency that will permit them to cancel if they're unable to find and or close on a replacement residence. So listing agents should recommend to their sellers in this position that they include in their transaction the seller's purchase of replacement property form, that is form SPRP. This form provides sellers with contingencies that enable them to cancel if they either are unable to find replacement property or close on a replacement property that they have found. The SPRP also permits the seller to decide when time periods will start for the property they are selling. They can start time periods immediately or after locating the replacement property. In either case, this contingency will protect them against breach if they have to cancel because they can't find or close on replacement property. And that is really what's paramount for sellers in this position. You know, they need a place to go before they close escrow. And if they can't find it, they don't want to be in breach of contract. So this form really serves that purpose for them. And keep in mind, you can use the SPRP, whether your seller is planning to buy replacement property or rent or lease a replacement residence. Exactly. Right. I think it's just important to remind people about this form in general, you know, for two reasons. One, um, even when listing agents and sellers know that their seller wants or needs this contingency, so often we, we see listing agents just writing into a counteroffer, you know, seller contingent on finding replacement property right. or, or, you know, seller contingent on seller 
seller's property of choice or something. And, you know, that, that vague language doesn't does not do anybody any good. And so, right. uh, you know, it's important just to remember that the, the SPRP form is there um, and, and really covers everybody to make sure that everyone's on the same page about timeframes and protections. And then just in general, um, you know, I, and you said this at the very beginning, but when it's a tight competitive inventory market for buyers, you know, a, a lot of sellers are going to inevitably be buyers on the other end, right? Exactly. They're having the exact same problem. Exactly. They're having the same problem. They got it made in the shade for the property they're selling, but now they need to buy and they just, it can be very risky to take it for granted or assume that the seller will definitely find something. um, And and like you mentioned, a lot of times a short sentence, something that's incomplete Mm -hmm. is written into a counter. Right. And that is simply not sufficient. It ends yeah. up, you know, with people end up with more questions than answers and Absolutely. we get the call, you know, yep. what do we do? And so you really want to make sure that you have really um, comprehensively addressed this issue. And you can do that using the SPRP. Exactly. And that is a perfect um, segue into our next hot topic. Speaking of people writing sentences that are ill-advised into offers and counteroffers, <laughs> let's talk about appraisal clauses. So uh, before we started recording today, we were sort of commiserating over how many calls we're still getting on this topic because this exactly. is a, a very hot topic for months and months and months. And I'm sure anyone who's listening to this is going to be familiar with this practice, which is buyers writing into offers or sometimes sellers writing into counter offers, buyer to pay $10,000 over appraised value. And that's it. And then of course, the appraisal in this hot competitive market with these bidding wars and appraisal um, practices largely lagging behind the market, the appraisal comes in $50,000 low. (laughs) And so (laughs) then we get the call, well, what does this mean? What happens now? And Mm -hmm there's only so much we can do for people in that situation because you know, our response is, well, you wrote this clause. What did you, what do you think it means? What does the other side think it means? And often there is room for interpretation on both sides. Mm -hmm. If the, if it says buyer to pay $10,000 over appraised value and it comes in 50,000 under, does the seller have to reduce the purchase price? I don't know. Does the, but you know, what, how to, how does it affect the appraisal contingency? There's just so many factors that people don't think through <laughs> is right. what I gather, exactly. right? And so, and and it's like anything, it's not a problem until it is one. Um, and so what, you know, there's a couple of different ways to approach this. And frankly, what I always tell people is the most important thing is just to be very explicit about what the parties expect to happen. Mm-hmm. If the expectation is, that in the event of a low appraisal, the purchase price will be adjusted or the purchase price will be reduced, then say that. Then say that, you know, if the appraisal comes in low, purchase price to, you know, will be adjusted to $10,000 over appraised value or, you know, something along those lines. Mm -hmm. Um, Of course, when you put it that plainly, in in a competitive market, it might be harder to get a seller to accept that (laughs) offer but that's the risk you run. Um, what I think people often are trying to do is really amend the appraisal contingency is mm-hmm. actually say, look, if the, as long as the appraisal comes in within 10 to $15,000 of the purchase price, the buyer's willing to make up that difference. And right. so if instead that, of canceling, which they normally exactly, instead of canceling, basically they want 
you know, because the, the other end of the, you know, the other side of this is you could just waive the appraisal contingency altogether and say buyer will make up the difference no matter what it is, but that's a huge risk for buyers in this kind of market with these huge appraisal differences. And so, mm-hmm. you know, what we have done is we do have some guidance available. We have a, a quick guide that we wrote up that is available on car.org. You can put a link to it um, in the notes for this episode. But really what we've laid out is the importance of, like I said, amending the appraisal contingency and basically mm-hmm. using language, essentially saying that, you know, paragraph three I is modified so that the agreement is contingent on an appraisal of no less than X dollar amount, you know, however much less than the purchase price you're willing to go. That's ultimately sort of the right way to accomplish. Right. And just making sure both sides really understand what is meant. Right, exactly. I, I sometimes talk to uh, agents and brokers who, you know, kind of get the sense that maybe that there's different interpretations for language and kind of want to roll the dice with, well, you know, we think it means this, but my advice is always, it's just not worth the risk of having vague or unclear language. It's so important for the parties to have a mutual understanding of the terms they're agreeing to when a contract is created. And so if you want the right to have the purchase price reduced, you got to say that explicitly. And on the opposite side, if you don't want that, you just say that explicitly as well. And you can always just amend the appraisal contingency. So it's contingent on an appraisal at a different dollar amount than necessarily the contract price, if that's what the parties want to agree on. Precisely. So that's appraisal clauses. Yeah. So moving on to another popular topic, um, and that is seller rentbacks. This is also oh, yeah. really hot right now. <laughs> I um, mean, it's, it's tied to the SPRP issue, it, right? It, but it, sellers... It, 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 it is. Sometimes it's in that, in that way. Sometimes. Yeah. They, they want extra time to find a place or something. So yeah. they want to stay in their home. Um, you know, usually the SPRP is the better form, but mm. there are occasions when they want to use the they want to seller do a rent back instead. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, some sellers, you know, they want to close and have cash to purchase before they move or to rent or whatever they need to do. Um, or they just need additional time, you know, for whatever reason. Um, sometimes a tenant's in, in, in possession and they need to have time, you know, if it's a relative or even if it's just a tenant and they need to give them time to move out or something. So for numerous reasons, sellers may want to include a seller rent back. And this is particularly popular right now because replacement property, as we mentioned before, has become so difficult to find. So a lot of times, you know, you find sellers need that extra time to locate property. On the other hand, it's sometimes the buyer that initiates the rent back discussion. Sometimes they have a rate lock that's expiring on a loan or some other condition that makes them want to close on time, whereas a seller will want to stay in a little, you know, longer or whatnot. So in any case, you know, where a seller rent back is included, the questions we usually get are how do we document this? You know, how do we document this and the terms of the seller's stay after close? And there are two ways. One is when a seller is going to remain in possession for 29 days or less, use form SIP, seller in possession. And this form grants the seller a license to remain in the property on a short-term basis. Um, however, for rent backs of 30 days or more, 
the parties should use form RLAS, the residential lease after sale form. That form is similar to a rent or lease agreement and the parties take on the roles of landlord and tenant. In either case, the forms can be used to document the terms of the seller's stay after close. So this brings us to another interesting hot topic. Who gets the keys during the rent back period? Obviously the seller keeps a copy of the keys as he has to get in and out of his own house. But what about the buyer? For parties that use form SIP for rent backs of 29 days or less, provision six in form SIP lets the parties choose whether the buyer gets the keys at close or at the end of the rent back period. For parties using form RLAS for rent backs of 30 days or more, the buyer gets the keys at the close of escrow. And that's about it for that topic. Um, yep. What's another topic that's frequently raised under <sighs> these days? So, <laughs> as people might have noticed, pretty much all of these topics um, are, are basically related to the, the hot market, right? The super competitive market, low inventory, multiple buyers. And one of the things we're seeing is that most. Uh, most properties when they hit the market are getting multiple offers, right? We're seeing mm -hmm. bidding wars and a lot of offers coming in. And so if, you know, but, but transactions do still fall apart for a variety of reasons. Mm -hmm. um, you know, buyers have issues with their loans, there's problems with the inspections or, or who knows what. And so even after a seller has chosen a buyer and opened escrow, that escrow very well may cancel. But because of the nature of this super hot market, the seller may already have one or more backup offers waiting in the wings, or if they put it back on the market, they may get a ton of offers right away. And so we're getting calls from a lot of listing agents with very eager sellers who want to know what can they do while they are working out a cancellation um, between the seller and the buyer. Exactly. Because as I think everyone understands, cancellation is a two-step process. There's canceling the contract and there's canceling the escrow. Mm -hmm. And one side or the other can cancel the contract. A, a buyer can cancel based on their contingencies, or maybe a seller has canceled after giving a notice to perform if the buyer is not performing and meeting their deadlines. And in those cases, you can have essentially a unilateral cancellation of the contract by whoever is exercising their rights to cancel. However, canceling the Escrow is always going to be a different story. Uh, mm -hmm. Escrows, for the most part, are always going to require mutually signed instructions in order to cancel the escrow and release the deposit to one side or the other. Even if it's crystal clear who should get the deposit, even if the seller is just trying to give the deposit back to the buyer, um, the escrow is always for good reason and their own protection is always going to no, require no. both sides to sign off or worst case scenario, a legal order of some kind, um, you know, ordering them to release the funds to one side or another. Right, so, because they really just don't want to take the risk of releasing yes. it to the wrong party and later it, a court comes back and orders them to release it to right. another. Even if it's, yeah, even if it seems, like I said, crystal clear, they just are not going to make that determination, you know, about who's entitled to what. So they are going to remain sort of frozen and neutral until they are forced to do otherwise. And so a lot of sellers wonder, well, what can I do when I'm in this sort of, you know, murky middle zone of having a canceled contract, but not a canceled escrow. So as long as the contract has been canceled, the seller can put the property back on the market. It can go back active and, and start looking for a new buyer as long as a cancellation of contract 
has been signed by one side or the other. So, you know, not before then. So don't, don't get too eager and then switch the property back active when you're about to cancel or if you think a cancellation is coming. But once a contract has, once a cancellation has been signed by buyer or seller, then the seller can put the property back on the market. Mm-hmm. Now, what um, most people do in my experience, and this is probably going to be very familiar to anyone listening, but it seems to be pretty standard practice to put language in the listing that says, you know, subject, you know, pending cancellation of current escrow or subject to cancellation of current escrow. Mm-hmm. Cause you want to be upfront about that. You, you know, you want to full disclosure as in all things to make sure that any interested buyers know, Hey, there is still this open escrow and you know, <laughs> that's going to need to be dealt with um, in one way or another. So it's very important to disclose that up front. And then the other question we get is, well, now, you know, can they accept another offer? What can the seller do? And this is where you want to be very careful because even if the contract has been canceled until that escrow is actually canceled, you have this potential just issue hanging around (laughs) potential cloud on title from the point of view of escrow and title company. And until the buyer has signed on the dotted line and said, this contract is done and we're releasing each other from all obligations, you, you just don't know what they're going to do. And yeah. so the absolute safest course of action is to keep a second buyer in backup. We have the BUO, the backup offer addendum that says that the agreement is contingent upon the cancellation of the prior contract and the prior escrow. Um, and really that's the, the safest way to sort of just wait it out. Now, sometimes these things can drag out and maybe the seller has an immediate need to sell. And so the buy and, and maybe the buyer is, is very eager as well and they want to start the process. So can the buyer and seller opt in to like letting the buyer start inspections and start timeframes? They can, but it just needs to be done with really everybody's, you know, again, full disclosure, full consent. And the other piece of information that I always say is talk to your escrow, talk to your title company, find out how is this going to work? Because there's just going to be practical hangups as well. You may or may not be able to open a new escrow, you know, at the same company while this is going on. Some people I know will switch escrow companies, but you got to disclose, you got to let everybody know that this other escrow is out there and really find out how that's going to affect the seller's ability to move forward um, and, and be able to sell the property. And ultimately the seller needs to have language in a contract saying that the contract is subject to contingent upon the cancellation of that prior escrow until that escrow has actually gone away. Because you just, the last thing you want is for that first escrow to cause a problem, whether it's a, itself a cloud on title or that first buyer maybe taking an extreme action and filing a Liz pendants or something like mm-hmm. that. And now you have a seller who themselves are in breach of contract with the second buyer because now they're the ones who can't close. So you're going to be very, very careful if you're trying to juggle those uh, offers in that way. Right. And, and the thing is, is if they are just in a money dispute, a monetary dispute, the mm-hmm. buyer and seller, your second escrow will often go forward and close at a different escrow house or whatnot. Exactly. And there's so you, that can happen, but you do still need that protective right. language just in, in it. Exactly. And that's a great point. Um, and one last thing we should mention, which is there is a difference between a first buyer who still wants to buy and who thinks they have a right to buy 
or a first buyer who's walking away, but you're fighting over the deposit. And there is a option on the cancellation on the form CC, cancellation of contract and escrow, on the escrow cancellation portion, where both parties, the buyer and seller, can acknowledge that the contract is canceled, but say that they are, you know, that the deposit will be held until they resolve who's Mm going to get the deposit. So that's a good option if you are in a situation where both parties, you know, everyone knows that the deal is not going to move forward, but they just are fighting over who gets the deposit. You want to make sure, you know, get that signed and that, that will go a long way into, you know, letting the seller move forward easier. If the buyer, the first buyer acknowledges, I don't want to buy anymore. I just want my deposit back. Precisely. So one last popular <laughs> Speaking question. Of- cancellations. Yeah. (laughs) So one last popular question we're getting is uh, along the same lines. Um, It involves a non-contingent buyer that wants to cancel during escrow. And the question that arises quite often is, can he get his deposit back in some ways? Is this possible? (laughs) Well, generally, no. Um, The earnest money deposit or EMD is at risk once all contingencies have been removed and the buyer cancels or otherwise defaults under the agreement. This generally happens when a buyer, for example, doesn't qualify for a loan later on in the loan, but he's removed all of his contingencies, including the loan contingency, or the house doesn't appraise after mm-hmm. um, he's removed his you know, appraisal with the other contingencies. And, you know, then the loan isn't approved and the amount of the purchase and he can't make up the difference or doesn't want to, et cetera. And, or simply, you know, a buyer might just change his mind, you know, after inspections and so forth, but he's removed all of his contingencies. Mm -hmm. But whatever the reason, selling agents should make it very clear to buyers that since their contingencies have been removed, they do not have a valid basis for canceling as they have no contingency, no means to do so under the contract and they are at risk of losing their deposit. There is a narrow exception where a seller provides um, buyer with a late TDS or other late statutory or material disclosure. In that circumstance, buyers will have a right to cancel within three days of receiving that disclosure if it is hand delivered and within five days if it is received by mail or email. However, buyers cannot count on a seller providing late disclosures when entering into a purchase agreement. So you don't go in non-contingent with that hope in mind. And definitely they should be warned that canceling during escrow will likely result in the loss of their EMD, you know, mm-hmm. because they won't generally have a way to cancel. Right. Exactly. There's, there's sort of this conventional wisdom that, oh, buyers can always cancel and get their money back. Yeah. Well, the contract has a lot of contingencies, but once those are waived, the the buyer really is locked in and their deposit really is at risk. Mm-hmm. And non-contingent offers have been um, a common occurrence in certain market areas for a long time, certain, you know, very high price competitive, you know, in the Bay Area and places like that. Um, but man, in this hot market, it seems like they're everywhere. Everywhere so, now. I Everybody's going non-contingent. Without exactly. thinking about it, it seems, you know, what exactly that means. Well, it doesn't, that is, it doesn't mean that if I find something horrible, I can't cancel, does it? Well, right. yeah, that's exactly yeah. what it means. Exactly. So. We're seeing a lot of uh, buyers and, and agents who've, who've never really been in a non-contingent situation before. And so, um, yeah, it's it's a very big risk for the buyer. This is a situation 
in which I would strongly advise buyer's agents to make sure to provide their clients with the market conditions advisory form, form MCA. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's a pretty standard practice, but you know, highlight it for them. Really make sure that they are reading it. Um, that form lays out what um, contingencies are and the risks associated with making non-contingent offers. And so, you know, I know people often give all these advisories, they don't really read the disclosures, but the last thing you want as a buyer's agent is for your non-contingent buyer client to say, well, you didn't tell me I could lose my deposit right. if I didn't close. <laughs> so it's, it's completely the buyer's decision about how much risk they're willing to take to try to get an offer accepted in this competitive market. Mm-hmm. Um, you just want to make sure that they are fully informed and that they understand any risks they may be taking. That's right. And, and she's absolutely right. With the MCA, make sure you verbalize to them yes. you know, how important this yeah. is because, the, you know, reading, maybe they read it, maybe they don't. Yeah. Um, don't just stick it in a stack of documents. Really, you know, go over it with them. Yes, exactly. So that's about it for this version of hot, Hotline Topics. But before we go, we'd like to mention a couple of new forms that have recently been released and are now available in zip form. The first new form is the transfer of listing form, form TOL. So TOL, transfer of listing, that makes it easy to remember. And this form allows a broker and seller to assign and transfer the seller's listing to a different broker. And the form can also be used to transfer lease listings or really any type of listing, commercial, vacant land, et cetera, to another broker. This comes in handy when an agent is leaving a brokerage and takes a listing with them to a new brokerage or when a broker otherwise wishes to transfer a listing to another broker. Form TOL terminates the agency with the original broker and sets forth the terms and conditions for transferring listing to the new broker. The form addresses items like escrow, MLS access, trust funds, transferring transaction files and documents, and compensation to the original broker if desired by the parties. Finally, in Form TOL, the original broker and principal, meaning the seller or the lessor, agreed to release one another from further obligation and duties under the listing agreement and from any claims arising from the listing. So it's really a great form that facilitates transferring the listing and ensures that nothing is forgotten in the process. And we have another new form. Well, kind of new, right, Jenna? We sure do. Yes, we have the somewhat new form, um, the FHDS form, the Fire Hardening and Defensible Space Advisory Disclosure and Addendum is the uh, <laughs> final title of this form. This is a long. This has been a long time in the works. So yeah. basically, um, what happened is that over a year ago now. Um, there was this new law passed, this sort of new fire safety law that has to do with disclosures and, and fire safety issues when selling property. And, and it's been rolled out in two stages. So starting in January, we had the new home hardening disclosure, the HHDA. Right. So hope that we've been over that. Hopefully everyone is familiar with, with home hardening. Um, right. And that is was a new disclosure that was required. Um, basically, the seller is required to disclose if there are the property is lacking certain home hardening features, if there's certain vulnerabilities in the property. And that applies to any residential one to four unit property um, where where it's located in a high or very high fire hazard severity zone and was built prior to 2010. Um, That's the home hardening aspect of it. And this is all a part of the the TDS, the transfer disclosure statement law 
So if the seller is TDS exempt because they're a trustee or a probate administrator, they're exempt from these requirements as well. But now starting July 1st, um, there is the second part of this law, which is the defensible space compliance requirement. And so the HHDA form has become the FHDS. The first half of it is the same as the old HHDA and, and deals with the, the home hardening disclosure parts. But the second half of the form now deals with this defensible space requirement law. And what this defensible space requirement law says is that for any property located in a, again, residential one to four unit, and again, in a high or very high fire hazard severity zone, um, this time you're built doesn't matter because we're talking about the area around the structure and not the structure itself. Um, basically it says that for these properties, there are certain defensible space laws that already exist. Um, there's a state law in the public resources code for certain properties in the state responsibility areas that say you have to maintain defensible space on your property. And there may be uh, local ordinances as well. Certain places have enacted what are called vegetation management ordinances that may build upon the state law. And what all of these laws do is they basically put the obligation on a property owner to, well, maintain what is called defensible space on the property. Right. Essentially, it's keeping a buffer zone around the structure on your property so that in the event that there is, you know, a fire spreading through the community, that you are hoping, helping to slow the spread of that fire. And so, mm. you know, you're cutting down uh, grass and, and other brush to a certain level. You're clearing out trees and bushes so they're not packed too tightly so that it would hopefully slow down any fire that is spreading and also provide some safety in the event there's firefighters trying to defend your home, that they're not surrounded by a bunch of flammable material. Right, so, because that vegetation, that is what gets these fires Exactly, going. that's really what can pose a lot of danger in these wildfire mm -hmm. situations. And so what the new law does, so th these laws are already in effect. There's already laws out there that say, if you live in these fire zones, you should be maintaining defensible space. Mm -hmm. What this new law does is it adds an element of forcing property owners, maybe sellers, maybe buyers, depending on the circumstance, to actually go out and obtain compliance, or sorry, obtain documentation of their compliance with this law. Mm. So in a area where there is no local ordinance, so you're in a state responsibility area or some other very high fire hazard severity zone, and there is no local law that requires you to go out and get this compliant, this documentation, then basically the default is going to be, well, buyer, you're going to agree that within one year after closing, you will make sure the property is in compliance and you'll go out and get that documentation. Now, this is assuming that there is what's called an authorized inspector who can go out and do an inspection and provide documentation. Um, in a lot of places, that's going to be through CAL FIRE, and CAL FIRE is um, setting up, they're in the midst right now, as we, as the clock's about to hit July 1st, they're in the midst of setting up their program to get defensible space inspectors out into areas that are under their jurisdiction, so that's going to be a large chunk of the state, um, and then for a place where there's a local ordinance, then basically there's an option for buyers just to agree to buy the property and get obtain documentation of compliance in accordance with the local law. Mm -hmm. Now, there's two situations in which the seller is going to be obligated to provide this documentation. 
One is in an area where there's no local law requirement that says the seller has to do it. If the seller ha already has documentation that they've obtained within the past six months, then they can just give that to the buyer and the whole thing's done and everybody's done what they need to do. So, you know, and this could be something the seller affirmatively went out and did on their own. It could be that Cal Fire or another agency just came knocking and did an inspection right. recently. Those do happen in some locations on a regular basis. And if the seller does have documentation that they obtained in the past six months, they give that to the buyer, end of story. Now, the possible but least likely scenario is if there is an actual local point of sale requirement, if there's a law in the city or county where the property is located that says when this property is sold, seller, you have to go out and make, get the documentation and make sure it's in compliance with defensible space law. Well, then seller, if that's what the law says, then you got to do it. Right. Um, there aren't a lot of these point of sale requirements out there. In fact, the only one that I'm personally familiar with is up in Truckee, in the Tahoe Truckee Fire District. They do have a local point of sale requirement. And that, from what I can tell, is pretty well known to folks who do transactions up there. So that shouldn't come as a surprise. But, you know, this, unfortunately, every year fire season does seem to get a little bit worse and a little bit worse. Mm -hmm. And so we're, I think we're going to just be seeing more of these fire safety rules and, and laws going into effect. So I know that's a ton of information and <laughs> this law and this disclosure are incredibly complicated. Um, I will make sure again to link to all of our resources. We have some really good um, Q and A's and quick guides on this topic. Um, our Q and A was recently updated to really include a step-by-step -step guide to show you what you need to do to make sure that your transaction is satisfying these defensible space law requirements. So I'll make sure to link that for everybody. And then of course, like with everything else, people can always reach us on the hotline. <laughs> we'll be happy to go over these issues with you because I know um, this defensible space law in particular is really, uh, you know, causing it's a lot really of complicated. It's, it's, it's really little... complicated. No, it's, it's, it's incredibly complicated. Um, mm -hmm. And it's a lot for <laughs> you know, every buyer, sellers and agents to wrap their head around. No, exactly. Yeah. I think that's, that's it on yeah. FHDS. Great. That wraps it up for our new form section as well. Yeah, so, I think we covered it. So this wraps up another episode of the Legal Matters podcast. Thanks to all of you for listening. We hope you have enjoyed our episodes so far. If you have enjoyed them, the best way to make sure you never miss an episode is by subscribing to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And while you're there, feel free to give us a review and maybe even a five-star rating. Those reviews and ratings can help other folks find the show. You can also reach out to us here at the podcast directly by emailing us anytime at legalpodcast at car.org. Finally, don't forget about all of the ways CAR Member Legal can help you stay in business and stay out of trouble. Of course, CAR members can call the hotline with any questions or issues at 213-739-8282, Monday through Friday, 9 to 6, and Saturday, 10 to 2, for transactional questions. Our other informational and educational materials can be found at car.org under the risk management section. Head over there to check out our Q&As, quick guides, webinars, and more. All of the many, many resources I referenced on today's episode. Exactly. And some of those we will append. 
That's true. And check out the notes on this episode with some shortcut links to those as well. Excellent. So I guess that's it for now. And we'll see you next month. Bye, everyone.